0: And We've had a nice chat. We had a nice chat in, um, gosh, before Christmas um, for Record Collector magazine, and um, also um, I first met you in the late '90s um, when Pieces of You first came out, um, and I remember. In fact, m- my good friend David, who's who's on um, in the audience today, um, we remember seeing you at the Borderline <laughs> when you just started, and uh, and look. I mean, it's amazing, you know, it's amazing how far you come and, and all the albums you've released in, in so many different genres, different moods, um, different emotions expressed. You're always such a, you know, you're so brilliant at expressing emotion and capturing emotion in your songs. And it, it's been lovely to kind of follow your journey. Um, so today, I'd just like to ask you a few questions and we can talk a little bit about that journey. Um, really quite extraordinary um, and like with any story I think you know it's always good to begin at the beginning and um, and something I'd I'd like to ask you about is you know what was it like growing up in rural Alaska I mean it's quite an unusual background for you know a Grammy Award winning singer-songwriter.
1: Growing up in Alaska was uh very seminal in shaping who I was, for sure. Um, I was raised without a television, uh, without running water, we had a cold stove for heat. Um, and so that did a lot of things for me. One, you spent a lot of time quiet in the silence in nature, and that gave you a lot of time to think and made you imaginative. And it caused me to read a lot. And that ended up being very good for me. Um, and then the hard work. I was raised um, by pioneer, a pioneer family. <clears throat> my family actually came from Switzerland and uh, were living in Germany and escaped the Second World War. And so that pioneer mentality of I don't know what I'm doing, but you have to figure it out. You have to rely on yourself. Um, all those things ended up being really instrumental in helping my career. Because one part of your career is being an artist and writing and singing. Uh, But the other part is really tenacity. You know, if I was judging a a musician show today, I would probably spend one day seeing if they were a good singer, because you can tell pretty quick, it doesn't take a whole season. I would spend the rest of the time seeing who they were, what they're made of. Can they work hard? Are they gritty? Are they tenacious? Do they have a viewpoint? What do they care about talking about? Um, And I think Alaska helped form all of that for me.
0: I I was very impressed um, when we we talked um, uh, before Christmas and you were talking about the pioneer stock in your family and the really strong women and I was (laughs) I was mightily impressed when you said you know they actually sawed up logs and made their own houses um, and rode horses. Can you say a bit more about what what kind of um, uh, how, how inspiring that
1: was to you? Yeah, I come from, uh, my dad's family is large. He was raised on this homestead with six sisters, and then there were two boys. And my grandmother was running that homestead while my grandfather was off either exploring, he also became a senator, and so he was away in DC a lot. So my grandmother and those six girls, along with my dad and his brother ran that ranch. And so everybody had to do whatever was expected of them, whatever needed to get done had to get done. Um, So I wasn't raised with female roles versus male roles. And I don't know what it's like in England, but in the States here, typically, especially in the South, men have very specific jobs and women have specific jobs. And that's not how I was raised. Um, My older brother did all the cooking and all the cleaning. And I actually did the outdoor working with cattle and horses. Uh, If I wasn't strong enough, I just had to find a way to do it, you were you were expected to figure things out. Um, And my aunts were like that they were incredible women to be raised around. Mm -hmm. My mom had left when I was young, but these these uh, aunts of mine were very influential because they did run their own ranches, they were their own, you know, cattlemen, they made their own houses, and it's just what they were raised like
0: yes yes some some a real core strength there you know i'm sure that must have been really inspiring and you're right you know i think i think qualities that funny enough you really do need to succeed in the music industry that that sense of grit and you know hanging on through and being able to continue through struggle you know that that's that's a large part of it isn't
1: it yeah um, when i was on the record label you know you're on there with maybe 300 to 600 other artists on a big label like that and you're all trying to get attention from a very limited amount of funds and resources and people and staff. And a big part of it was looking around me and realizing I was tougher than the other musicians. (laughs) As weird as that sounds, it takes a ton of stamina to tour. You know, I was doing a thousand shows a year. I was doing four and five shows a day. I was doing two and three cities a day, and I realized I might not be more talented than anyone else because art is subjective. It's not like one of us is necessarily better than the other. It's like saying orange is better than blue. But I knew I could outwork people, and that is, you know, actually its own skill set that ended up paying off. Definitely, definitely.
0: Um, so, yeah, so you you have this amazing wild childhood in, in Alaska. Um, but then... Um, a period where you were living homeless um, and living in Southern California. Can you t- can you tell me how that came about?
1: Um, yeah, I moved out when I was young. I moved out when I was fifteen. My dad and I had a really difficult relationship, and so I started paying rent and I would hitchhike to work. And then I got a scholarship to a prestigious boarding school in Michigan. I got a partial scholarship. And so my town, I did my first solo show. I wasn't writing yet. I I sang all Cole Porter songs because there is a gay man in me dying to get out. <laughs> and my town helped me raise $10,000 and I was able to go to this amazing school. After I graduated high school, I went to San Diego to care for my mother who was sick at the time. And I was just working a series of dead-end jobs. And my boss took me aside one day to have a talk with me, and I realized he was propositioning me. Mm. And when I wouldn't have sex with him, he wouldn't give me my paycheck the next day. And so I wasn't able to make rent, and my mom and I were kicked out of our apartment. And she eventually went back to Alaska, and I kept living in my car, really determined to make it turn around. I didn't want to go back to Alaska. I kept thinking I could get it to turn around, but it just didn't, it ended up being a lot harder. Um, My car got stolen and then that poverty cycle is just incredibly difficult to get out of. It's very hard when you don't have a physical mailing address to um, put on a job resume, you know, they have no dress. And you start looking a little homeless after a while. (laughs) You don't look quite normal. Um, And it was just difficult. I couldn't hold jobs down because I had sick kidneys um, and it just was sort of this really vicious cycle.
0: Yes, I I remember when we when we talked about this um, before, um, you had to dig deep inside yourself, didn't you, to find the resources to get through this this um, phase and and not just
1: give in. I mean, how how did you manage that? Um, it, it felt like one of those moments that was make or break, and I was definitely very determined to figure it out. I was having panic attacks. I was becoming agoraphobic. Um, things just kept getting worse and worse. And I felt like if I didn't figure it out, then I never would figure it out. Um, I don't really know why I felt that way. Uh, I'm sure if I, you know, I started street singing, I probably could have earned a ticket back to Alaska. Um, it just didn't dawn on me. I didn't feel like home. I wasn't particularly close to m- my parents. Uh, And I wanted to turn it around and I remembered this quote by Buddha that said happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have it depends on what you think and I wanted to see if I could turn my life around one thought at a time I was very interested in the idea of nature versus nurture and if I received bad nurture which I did I was raised in an abusive household and my dad was raised in an abusive household and I'm sure his dad was raised in an abusive household if we received this bad nurture how do you get to know your real nature Um, or are kids like me just screwed? Is there no hope? And I wanted there to be hope. And there was nowhere I knew to turn to, you know, you could learn a new language at school, but you couldn't learn a new emotional language, a new way of stripping away a lot of your programming and seeing who you were naturally under that. And that began to fascinate me. And it's why I started writing songs. And it's interesting now, you know, the Me Too movement is popular. And, If I broke now, and I said in my very first interviews, I ended up living in my car because I wouldn't have sex with a boss, that would have been the headline. Back then, every journalist just kept saying she lived in her car for her dreams. And that, I mean, I ended up becoming a musician. That was incredible. But it's not why I ended up in my car. Mm -hmm. I was not trying to get signed. I was not trying to be famous. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it is very interesting to be around long enough to see yeah, how things evolve and stick and how narratives happen.
0: Yes, I think, you know, something that's changed a lot, you know, when I think because I've worked as a music journalist um, since the 80s and 90s, really, um, what's changed radically is people's attitude towards mental health and their understanding of mental health is much more uh developed it's much more sympathetic you know i mean uh in in the past uh anyone uh who they would get labeled um with a difficult reputation wouldn't they oh god you know they just can't sort themselves out and with very little awareness of what was going on under the surface um how you know you you've talked about your panic attacks etc how did you how did you combat that especially when you um y- you were offered a record deal in fact you there was a major label bidding war um how did you um manage to keep uh, your your mental health in in that circumstance
1: when i was living in my car and um My goal was actually, it started when I was 15. You know, when I moved out, I knew statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle, and I did not want to be a statistic. And I took it as my number one job. I kept journals called my happiness project um, to see if happiness was a learnable skill if it didn't happen to have been taught in my household. So that was my number one focus, you know. And by the time I (laughs) ended up shoplifting and having this epiphany in the mirror while I'm trying to steal a dress, and that Buddha quote came to mind, I I realized, like, this is the moment I have to, I am a statistic, I was a homeless kid stealing, like, it doesn't get more of a statistic than that. And so I really became quite serious, not that I wasn't before just life was, it just was hard, you know, when you start having panic attacks, I'd never heard of panic attacks, I never heard of trauma or trauma triggering. Yeah. Those words just weren't around mindfulness wasn't around. Um, and so I began experimenting to see like, if my brain was trainable and was it retrainable? And I just started experimenting and using my body as a barometer to see what made me feel better. And I started to notice a lot of patterns. I started to notice there were only two basic states of being. There was dilated and contracted. And I realized every single thought, feeling, or action led to one of those two states. And it was all through just being observant and being curious and keeping notes on how I was doing. But I realized, you know, like shoplifting, it made me feel better. It was, it was a, it was like a drug. I didn't do drugs, but it was my, my drug. Yeah. Uh, it was my addiction. I was definitely addicted to it. Um, and that was a neurological response. I started noticing like this triad of before, during, and after. You know, now there's lots of scientific explanations. It's actually a habit loop. You would call it. Um, but I realized like the, before I'm stimulated by being, let's say homeless during is my response. That's when I would steal something. And then my reward was the after. So I realized I couldn't change being homeless right away, but I could change stealing. And so I started writing, I would replace the behavior, build a new habit and learn to get a new reward basically. Mm -hmm. And then I started to realize every single action was either making me dilate or contract. And I started to say, all right, I'm only going to try and do things that help me dilate and open. Because panic attacks are when you contract, and then you, yeah, your hormones go wonkers. And so it was just through a lot of experimentation. When I got signed eventually, it was a complete shock, a surprise. I was not an artist trying to get signed. I didn't think I was like that kind of talent. Um, But I almost didn't sign my record deal because I knew statistically you take somebody with my background And God forbid I become famous. That's every, you know, biopic you've ever seen on every musician. Um, Most musicians have mental problems. We have mental issues. We have emotional issues. We're highly sensitive typically as a breed and the world's hard for highly sensitive people. And a lot of us come from painful backgrounds. A lot of us turned to music as a medicine. And our industry has not historically been great at helping musicians remain productive and get healthy, because I think there's a real mis sort of belief that um even among artists that you can only create when you're in pain, or there's just enough people profiting off of you. I mean, look at Amy Winehouse, like they knew she was a drug addict.
0: Absolutely.
1: Her team should have said, "We don't need money that bad. We're not going to work with you until you come off the road and you Because we believe you can make better art sober. We believe you're worth that investment. That isn't sadly typically what happens. And so I was an artist that put my mental health first. It was my number one job before I signed my record deal. I made a promise to myself that my number one job was to figure out how to be happy. And my number two job was to be a musician. And I never mixed those up. Like I'm very proud looking back 25 years later that I... I took years between records. I killed my momentum, which is career suicide, but I did it for my health and it worked. I'm a functioning, happy adult (laughs) that happens to be a musician and I make music I love and I'm happy with those choices. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, And what's lovely is um, you've set up your own foundation, haven't you, for young people um, who have um, issues, you know, varying from homelessness to mental health issues. Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, something that struck me was nobody talked to me about these things. Nobody talked to me about nature versus nurture. I mean, I'd read it in some philosophy books, the concept. But not how do you re-nurture? How do you tackle habits? How can I do them one at a time? And unless you had access to therapy, I think the feeling was that there was no hope for you. Um, And so when I started kind of self-discovering the things that worked for me on my own without a therapist, and I could tell they were rewiring me, I could tell my behavior was better, I could tell I was happier, I wanted to see if it could help other people, again, that didn't have access to therapy. Um, or maybe did have access to therapy, but it wasn't working. You know, you talk, you feel kind of better for the day, but your life doesn't change. Your life should change. Um, so I started the foundation. We started it 18 years ago. We work with at-risk youth who, you know, might struggle with anxiety, depression, or more suicidal, severe ideation. Uh, and it, it works. You know, there's no therapists involved. Not that I have anything against therapists. Um, it's just that I've really learned that when you can give somebody the skills to start to um, relate to themselves in a certain way, using mindfulness. Um, it's very empowering. They start to realize their happiness is their own, their thoughts matter, you know, cause our actions are built on our thoughts and it is a really, it's a cool program. Yeah. And
0: it seems like that's a real community that is building itself there. Um, and I've looked at your website and it, and it was looking inspiring, really inspiring. It's called inspiring children. Um, so um, yeah, I mean that that's fantastic. Um, I wanted to go into it a little more now into your debut album, which is um, uh, now being reissued in this amazing. Um, I have to say, I put it here, and it's one of my um, uh, proud possessions. Wow.
1: Um,
0: fantastic twenty um, fifth anniversary edition. Um, do you, um, talk me through some of the songs. I mean, you know, it actually feels incredibly relevant, you know, even though it came out 25 years ago, you know, for instance, the song um, Who Will Save Your Soul, um, uh, it really feels like now and you you, you could kind of, it has, it has an atmosphere of America right now as well.
1: Do you want to say a little bit about that? What inspired that song? Yeah, um, Who Will Save Your Soul is the first song I wrote. I wrote it when I was 16. Um, I couldn't afford to get back to Alaska for spring break. And so I decided that I would hitchhike across the states uh, for an adventure. And I ended up hitchhiking through Mexico and I had learned guitar for this trip. I learned four chords. And so I kept repeating these chords over and over and making up more lyrics. And it was my first time seeing America. Yes, Alaska is part of America, but it's very different. and my, I think my family might have been a little different, you know, I was the first American born. So it was sort of a very European, upbringing in a way, uh, very Alaskan, but also with those Swiss roots and seeing America and pop culture and hero worship was shocking. And it was very, um, it was very different. And so those lyrics were just inspired by that, you know, me at that age, seeing America the first time. Uh, And it is a trip, you know, that song feels oddly prophetic, even to my own life that, you know, towers going up where the homeless have their homes, I had no idea I'd be homeless or experience what that feeling was, that there's no place for you to go, there's nowhere to sleep, there's no safe place to be, and it's illegal to be anywhere. It's hard, it's such a hard situation to be in. Um, and seeing it now, you know, reality TV wasn't even a thing. So it was just really funny that, that those lyrics are what they are. Yes,
0: yes. And and I guess as well, I mean, um, just thinking about, I mean, uh America is in, in quite a precarious state at the moment with COVID, etc. Does it feel quite scary at the moment? And and also with the, the storming of Capitol Hill last week?
1: I live out. Way out in the mountains. Um, I just talked to my dad, who's also back in Alaska, and he was on the edge of a canyon in the middle of, I mean, just the wilderness. But he had a radio signal and was able to hear the news. It is surreal when you live really remote in nature to hear about the tremendous distress um, that our whole world has been in, and then now America with the Capitol riots. In a strange way, as awful as it sounds. I'm grateful this happened. Because I think it would have been really easy to write off people's concerns that there was racism prevalent in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be just those wacky liberals. Um, This makes it really, really uh, unavoidably clear. Um, And I think it needed to be revealed in this way. Not that I'm happy or, you know, not that I would wish anybody hurt. Mm. Mm. But I think this gives everybody a very clear thing that you can't explain away. Um, But it's been hard. It's a really ugly, ugly thing to watch. I I just saw a manatee that was carved up with the word Trump on it. It's just like, whoo, that's a really ugly ugly thing to do an animal, not the name, just the carving. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's it's rough. There's a lot of really ugly stuff. But, you know, I have felt we're in a mental health crisis in America for a long time when we look at prior to, you know, coronavirus. So if you look at suicide, our suicide rates were up 70% between 2006 and 2018. Gun violence, opioid addiction, we're leading the world in a lot of these really abysmal statistics and they were prior to COVID. And if you take all these seemingly different issues from pollution to me, too, to gun violence, to drug addiction, to suicide, the one thing they all have in common is mental health. Mm. We have a mental health problem. Mm. You don't kill yourself unless you have a mental health problem and you don't do drugs unless you have a mental health problem and you don't leverage vulnerable people unless you have a mental health problem. So I think America really has to figure out, and it's not convenient because it's not a pill, and you can't just get mad at a Republican. <laughs> you actually have to focus on how are we disconnecting from ourselves and society? What systems do we have in place? And those are hard things to look at.
0: Sure, sure. Um, I know you've got your guitar with you, um, <laughs> and uh, and if you're feeling inspired, you might you might um, uh, play something um uh so you know feel free to burst in oh oops picking up now um uh another song i wanted to ask you about on on the album and it's one of my personal favorites my sister's watching and it's one of hers too is um foolish games um and and for that one i love that you know this is a great example of the way you capture that emotion that real um raw emotion um uh,
1: between people um can you say a little bit about what inspired that song yeah i was just looking i noticed a question about foolish games i was going back to try and find it it was something about a. there's some amazing questions by the way we will get yeah there are really good questions there was a question about the song being on the batman soundtrack Uh, i can't find it right now but they asked how that song came to be on that
0: soundtrack.
1: I think, you know, as an artist, you're always looking for opportunities that will help promote your music um, without you just hitting the road. So you're always looking for soundtracks, you're always looking for commercials or, you know, anything like that. So... The Batman-Robin ah. thing Adam came out Hicks. years after, sorry.
0: It's a question from Adam Klein. How there do, it is, yep. Yes, how did Foolish Games end up on the Batman-Robin and Robin soundtrack, and what was the process like to create the lush, string-laden radio mix, considering it's such a stark difference to the rest of the brilliantly raw pieces of view?
1: Yeah, Foolish Games originally was written, I think it was eight minutes long. Uh, it was written on guitar, I met Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's and she came up with that piano part in the studio. I think I was 19 at the time and just didn't know how to sing in the studio. I didn't enjoy singing in the studio, so we mostly did live songs. I went back to the coffee shop Um, and with Foolish Games, I think I took a live version from a coffee shop and then we layered some a, a, A violinist just kept retuning her violin to make a few simple harmonies. Um, But I wanted that record just to be really honest. I didn't know how to be more produced than I was. It's what I was. Um, By the time this single came around with Foolish Games, it might've been three years later and I had developed and evolved. I was singing much better. I was singing that song in particular much better. And so with that record, it was really common. I recut a lot of the songs for radio because You Are Meant For Me I think didn't get on the radio for two years. Um, and you, you grow when you learn more in that amount of time. Um, and I remember going in the studio on foolish games and uh, yeah, being impressed, I want to say it was kind of like with some Beatles, the way they were able to incorporate some really beautiful, smart string and horn arrangements um, that wasn't necessarily really pop, but seemed to work anyway. And that's what influenced me to create a more lush sound.
0: You know, it's so interesting, isn't it? I'm always struck by um, how a song can live with someone so that the way you sang that when you were 23, compared to how you sing it now, it's like there's a whole different layer, you know, a whole different layer of life experience and emotion that you you bring to that. So it's almost like a completely different song. Do do you feel like your relation, you know, your songs almost are like relationships?
1: Yeah, I think that... uh songs are like these houses you move into. um, And you keep discovering new rooms and aspects of them good songs. I've songs I've written that don't do that. Uh, It's a it's a definite litmus test of how well written a song is. And then vocally too. like a slower song like that really lets you explore it vocally for a very long time a faster song like standing still of mine there's just not a lot of room to move into it beyond the structure of what it already is so i actually find the quicker songs a little less interesting over time but
0: right um I I want to um, ask you a question about um, mentoring because obviously um, that's that's quite an important part of what you do with with young people. But you were mentored yourself, and um, you you were mentored um, by two of the greats. I mean Bob Dylan and Neil Young. What what did you learn from them?
1: Gosh, they kept me alive musically. Um, you know, my record was not a popular record for a really long time, for sure. And I didn't expect it to be. I mean, I knew I was making a full record at the height of grunge, so I knew it wasn't like an incredibly popular strategic move. But I hoped it would do something. I hoped it would keep me off the street. Um, and it looked like after a couple of years, it wasn't gonna do that. Um, and I started, I think I was just about to make a second record when Neil, no, Bob took me on the road with him. and his manager was like he won't meet you he won't talk to you he won't see your shows I was like I get it uh but after about four nights his manager said he he wants to meet you he's been watching you, and uh he really believed in me it was just staggering you know to go down there I had no idea what to expect and the first thing he did was like what a that uh that line of uh, so-called social security that's a it's a Merle Haggard line, right? It is. I was really influenced by Merle Haggard. And Merle has a line, so-called social security. So that's, I, I was nodding to that in Who'll Save Your Soul, which nobody has actually ever gotten, but Bob, Um, he loved my lyrics. He'd go over my lyrics. He'd ask me what made me write them. Um, He'd ask me what I was listening to and what I was reading. And he'd give me books and music to listen to. And he loved that I was solo and he liked that I didn't have a band and he was just very encouraging and I remember thinking you know what if nobody ever likes my music but and only Bob does I'm good like I can keep going um he really impressed on me that being a singer songwriter is different like you don't get to be liked in the same way you might you know your your path might intersect with pop culture but it might not and that isn't the point you know you're the the oath you take, as it were, as a singer-songwriter is something very different. It, it has to stay authentic um, and rooted in a sort of punk rock attitude, I guess I would say. And Neil Young was the same. He, um, I was making my second record at this point. I had given up on the first one. And when he brought me out, I quit that second record. And then that, the first one started to take off. And I just remember talking a lot to Neil about radio, and he's like, you know, fuck radio, you may never get radio, fuck interviews, and fuck radio, you know, he was just very like, you just be you and you keep touring. It's all about the live music and don't ever go digital. Um, But he really gave me a lot of again, that sort of that torch of what being a singer songwriter is different, like, you're gonna have to march to your own beat, and it may not ever sync up with society, or it may go in and out with society. But that's the sort of very sacred undertaking.
0: And I like the way you, you, you've you really taken inspiration from um, his point about um, following, follow, kind of following where the music takes you and if it takes you into another genre then so be it. So um, we, we get to um, the early 2000s and you explore digital pop, you know, your album um, 0304 and um, at that that got a sort of slightly mixed reaction. Do you want to say a bit about that? Do you think some people didn't quite get what you were doing there?
1: Um, yeah, you know, when I, when Who'll Save Your Soul became a hit, I got pretty nervous because I didn't, I mean, Who'll Save Your Soul is the first song I ever wrote and I didn't think it was ever gonna end up on radio much less that it would be a hit. So I didn't know how I did it or if I would ever write another song that was a hit. But then that record went on to just keep selling and keep selling. And I sold, I think 12, 15 million copies. And I realized it didn't matter if I ever had a hit again. (laughs) I could either take that as like the most pressure because I had to follow it up or I could just take all the pressure off and go, I just won the lotto. If I save my money, I don't have to have shit all neck, you know, ever again. So I went with the latter option, like taking all the pressure off. And making music because I love it, which is why I started. Um, but it's sure easy to let that get hijacked and make you think you have to keep being the popular girl, you know, in class, which isn't what I'm about anyway. So, and again, because of Neil and Bob, I just if I wanted to explore a new genre, I don't like doing the same thing twice. It's just not how I'm wired. I'm not that person. I I when I even write books. If I have to do a huge re-edit, I write a new book. Like it's just, it's kind of how I'm wired as an artist and I don't like repeating myself. I like learning and I learn the most when I'm doing something new. Grew up loving Cole Porter, as I mentioned. And so I wanted to make what I considered a modern Cole Porter dance hall record where it was meant for crowded spaces. It was meant to feel good. We were in the middle of yet another Middle Eastern war And I wanted it to be smart pop songs, and they're hard, they're hard to write, hard to write up tempo songs with smart lyrics that are still socially leaning, because, you know, again, a singer-songwriter has to write about society, not just love songs. And there's very few pop songs about intuition or, you know, a lot of the songs, what they're about on there. So I had a lot of fun with that record. My hardcore fans, it was very telegraphed because I was starting to do remixes at least one or two records prior. Yes. Uh, I started doing dance remixes. I started having number one dance remixes, mm. um, experimenting with electronic sounds like the new wild west is a sixties folk song, but put two electronic beats um, mm. off of my album this way, I think. Yeah. And so my, my fans that were paying attention definitely knew I was headed that way. It caught a lot of casual fans off guard and it caught the press off guard and you have to kind of remember it's weird now but in the 90s you weren't allowed as a singer-songwriter to be a sellout so your credibility was everything in my opinion there were so many people worrying about their credibility that they became sellouts just because they were so worried about their credibility you know i saw these cool rock bands spending hours on their hair (laughs) It was so douchey and commercial, but it was so that they looked like they didn't try too hard. And it's just like, I think our meter on what selling out is and what's authentic got really mixed up and it's hard. It's easy to game the press, in my opinion. I'll probably get in trouble for saying it, but you can game the press. You can work very hard on a very contrived image that seems like you don't care. And the press will buy it a lot of the time. For me, selling out personally would have been making the same record over and over. Um, so while people thought, you know, or press might have said that I was selling out by going pop, that's not what you do to to make money or have a sure thing. You don't go from being. In fact, I remember I think it was Geffen who did not work with me, but's a famous, you know, record guy. He took me into his office. I thought he wanted me to write for an artist, maybe. And I got in there and I could tell I was in trouble. It was like I got called into the principal's office. I've never met this man. And he sits me down and he pulls up a chair close to me. He doesn't say hi. He doesn't say nice to meet you. He gets his finger out and he goes, nobody wants this generation's Joni Mitchell to wear a miniskirt. You knock it the fuck off. like, <laughs> so strong feelings (laughs) and it really struck a nerve you know you weren't allowed to be commercial you weren't allowed to be pretty and be a female singer songwriter you weren't allowed to be sexy and be a female singer songwriter because otherwise you were the pussycat dolls or you were the spice girls and i liked pushing up against all that um and i thought it was so interesting people thought that was a sellout move because I mean, it's the dumbest move if you're trying to sell out and just make money. It's not a good move. (laughs) uh,
0: Yes, because I suppose, you know, the mainstream music industry is so much about sales, isn't it? Um, I'm going to take some questions from the audience in a minute, but just before that, I just wanted to ask you about your new album, which is coming out and highly anticipated, and you're kind of moving into more of a soulful, you know, almost gospel influences. Can you tell us a bit about um, uh, the, some of the songs that you've been recording?
1: Yeah, I started making a new album. Uh, I was really surprised that, as the political environment has just kept ratcheting up over the last ten or fifteen years, that punk rock hasn't had a massive resurgence, and there hasn't been this massive resurgence of folk singers and rock and, um, you know, great protest, you know lyrics from hip-hop artists there's there's some don't get me wrong there's amazing you know songs that are out you can definitely find but as a general thing i was expecting this huge wave to come back and it actually inspired me to make a record um as sort of a love song to emotionality um, and not just being contrived or likable uh it it seems to be coming out as more of a soul sound i definitely was heavily influenced by sarah vaughn and a lot of the early, early standards and R&B singers. You know, I think Marvin Gaye's record um, is one of the most beautiful. I'd, I I kind of call it a singer-songwriter album, a folk album, because it's really about the street and about the political environment. Mm. Um, and then as a songwriter, I've never really written for my voice. I can't really say why. I think "Foolish Games" might be the only song I wrote that shows my vocal range. I think maybe in my whole career, I just never wrote for my voice for some reason. Um, and on this record, I wanted to write for more of my range um, mm-hmm. because I love singing and I work at it all the time. And so finally thought it was time to write a record where I did.
0: You're talking about um, wanting to write songs for now, you know, it really feels
1: like a really quite a passionate testimony for now. Um, Do yeah, you I think one of the single greatest acts of defiance is remaining sensitive refusing to become bitter i've always felt that way like that's in the 90s it was also a very cynical dark time every musician was dying of drug overdoses and gen x was very lost and i i think a real act of rebellion is saying i choose happiness and it's not the blind optimistic you know be an ostrich with your head tucked in the sand it's seeing the screaming blood of our losses and going i choose to do better tomorrow that's strong um and so for me that's what the record's about and it's what we need definitely um
0: <clears throat> uh sh- shall we take a couple of questions do you want- yes yeah
1: um so can i scroll through them or do you want to-
0: yes no go ahead yes
1: uh, Sue Tan, hi, Julie. You're the first concert I attended and remain one of my favorite singers. Thank you. You're multifaceted and accomplished as a singer, songwriter, poet. Do you have a favorite among these that you enjoy doing most? I think poetry is my number one love. It's There's times I don't write for a year or two years even when I became a mom. But poetry has been a real constant. I have many, many books that I should have published since my first one. I just haven't, I've just always written it for me. So I'd say that's my favorite. Um, Rachel King, you built up a loyal fan base, the old school way by touring relentlessly, building relationships with fans via email lists, way before social media existed. True that. In a world of one hit wonders and viral videos, is it still possible to be a career artist these days? And do you see any positive outcomes for the music industry from the COVID pandemic? Great question. I love upset. I think artists tend to like upset if we uh, can dig in. You know, it's like entropy, everything breaks itself down, but it always gets rebuilt, it has to. So the more curious you get about how can I rebuild, I think it becomes a really creative thing. I do think it's still possible to be a career artist. I don't actually think it's, we stopped investing in artists as career talents. And artists quit too, by the way, it's not just the industry. Um, But as radio became so powerful, as we began to move into a single driven economy, which happened, you know, in the 80s, really and had its heyday in the 90s. You know, I got to exist when we were selling crap tons of physical product and we were able to just, when you had a hit, it was just a massive boom. But everybody, you know, the short term hit started to make so much money for people that all you needed was one good song on a record. And artists wanted to be famous really badly, managers, labels. It was so lucrative to have one hit that people quit thinking about entire albums and fans were getting ripped off for a good decade in my opinion and when digital came it leveled it because fans started to go your album stinks i like this one song i'll take the one song thank you and artists said okay and labels said okay and managers said okay we're going to keep focusing on that one song everybody wants and it's kind of defined how we moved forward And so artists quit thinking about, I want to be doing this for 50 years. What do I need for a 50-year plan? Labels quit thinking, I have to find, you know, if I look at it agriculturally, so you need a cash crop that's going to pay you this year, but then you need to have a crop that's going to grow in, in a year or in two years. And so you have to manage yourself agriculturally. And that's how I look at my career. You want things to help you pay your bills and not be crunched. But you don't want to be trying to get such a short term dollar that you um, hurt your ability to have long term evergreen growth. And it's hard. You know, I knew at 18 when I got signed that I wanted to be a 60 year artist. Like that was my goal. And so I made a decision. I'm going to support art more than fame. Sometimes they intersect, but not always. And so I made a lot of decisions that hurt my fame, but I kept my what I hope is my ability to be, I wanna be one of the best singer songwriters. (laughs) That's an ambitious goal. It's not something you get handed to you. It's not something you do in six records. It's not something you know, if you're gonna pull off, it's just a goal. But the things that I've done to keep myself alive as a writer, like taking time off, bad for the short term, great for the long term. And I think you need to find teams and artists that still care about that because we'll always have sensations and disposable music. And that's great. But you also hopefully will find people and artists that want to invest in themselves for a really long period of time because it's a hard it's a hard gig. It's a hard game to play, and I think makes it all the more interesting. That was a really long answer, I apologize. <laughs> um, when will I get the chance to perform in the u k again? Would I consider playing Glastonbury or any other festivals here? I am not a great festival artist because I'm mid-tempo I'm strictly mid-tempo jams, like <laughs> Not really fun at big, huge, loud spaces where people are drinking. Um, I've done some of the festivals across Europe and enjoyed them, but I don't know if people enjoyed me back. Would love to come to the UK. When my son gets a bit older, you know, and can tour and travel a little bit better, it'd be really fun to bring him over. Um, If you were to rank your own albums according to your own personal preference, what would your top three be? Hmm. I don't know. never thought about it. I think Lullaby would be one of my favorite records. I don't know if you guys know that album. I compiled all the songs I wrote over my career that helped me soothe my anxiety. I started writing songs for my anxiety. I wrote Angel Standing By, for instance, and a song called Raven. And so I put them all on a record called Lullaby. It was my first independent release, truly independent. There was no distribution. It was a full-on direct-to-consumer project. I sold half a million of them. I couldn't believe it. Um, But you can stream it. It's called Lullaby. Um, It's been this crazy runaway hit where college students, like, listen to it to study, and people in traffic listen to it to calm down. And it's been a neat record, one of my favorites.
0: (laughs) And it's got a lovely version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow.
1: Yeah, yeah, I finally got that on a record. I've always sung it live, but was never able to get it recorded. Um... Hi, Jewel, I was at the live concert q&a and I love the advice you gave me and I use it every day. My question is, how did you learn to play guitar and figure out your own tuning? You know, figuring out your own tuning isn't hard. You just kind of like move your strings around until it sounds pretty. That's nothing scientific. I mean, I'm sure you can actually Google tunings. <laughs> That's probably a much more smart way to do it. But just tune it to where it's interesting to your ear and goof around. It's not like you can break your guitar. So you might as well just have fun. Um, Michelle Fredericks from JMC says, what songs am I most proud of what song I guess will save your soul. I don't know if I'm most proud, but it's the song that started out at all for me. It was that first little first thing. So I think it always will hold a really special place in my heart. Uh, And it's probably actually always the first song I wrote, plus the most recent song I wrote. So whatever song I'm working on right now is usually my, my favorite. Should I keep going? Do we still have time?
0: We still have time, yes.
1: All right. Rachel King, I loved your book, Never Broken, and think it's remarkable how much adversity you've overcome, including betrayal from those closest to you. Is it possible to truly forgive these betrayals, and how has mindfulness and other techniques helped with this? It is completely possible to overcome your past. Again, a great act of defiance is healing. I don't know and that to me is like the best f u is a life well lived the best f u is the willingness and the ability to love and be open it's hard though cuz you have to work through some major issues i think the thing people don't always understand about forgiveness is that it's not for them you're not giving them anything they're not gaining a power over you it's not condoning behavior forgiving and condoning are two different words Uh, You free yourself. And I think the reason we don't often forgive is because we actually like that last tie that connects us. You know, it was my mom in my case. Forgiving my mom meant letting her go. That's pretty heavy. Be a lot easier to stay bitter because that anger keeps a cord attached. It's like a tether to a balloon or a cord to a person. And even though it's negative and self defeating and kind of toxic, it feeds you, you believe psychologically, that grudge that bitterness feeds you. And when you cut that cord, you really come to terms with the fact of like, I'm, it's a stop, it's a, (laughs) it's a letting go. And so I think usually when we can't forgive, it's because we actually want to be attached to that thing still somehow. Um, So forgiving, forgiving is easy, you know, it's one step, you just you move on, like for me, it was just like, I refuse to go backwards, I'm going to move forward, and I'm going to figure out to heal, and then it gets you in a position to learn to heal. And that takes time, but can definitely be done, for sure. Uh, Mindfulness definitely helps with that. Um, I think mindfulness is just a fancy word for being consciously present. When you're consciously present, it's like your body is a car, your brain is not the driver, it's a steering wheel. So when you're consciously present, that puts you in the driver's seat. It's your observer. It's the observer of thoughts, the observer of actions. And you can now get in this position to say, I observe I'm acting like a crazy person, or I observe I'm wanting to steal or whatever it is. And then you can make a different choice, which is a process. Um, Carol Walton, have you ever considered recording with a Philharmonic Orchestra like Elvis and other artists have done? Have thought about it. I did a Hollywood Bowl show with the l a Philharmonic. or no, it was the pops. Um, to try it out, speaking of singing, it it pushes me a lot of those standards or you know some of the best melodies ever written, and it pushed me as a vocalist. I loved doing it. Uh, I actually thought that would be my next record, but I ended up wanting to write. So maybe in the future.
0: Something I want to quickly ask you, while I remember it, Jewel is, and I have to, because I love Cindy Lauper. Um, is what was it like singing with Cindy Lauper and yodeling on on
1: a record with her? You're the first person to bring that up. Um, I love Cindy. She's so fun. You know, in the '80s, I think you were either a Cindy Lauper fan or a Madonna fan. I chose Cindy because she just seemed like she'd be funner to hang out with. <laughs> it didn't seem so pretentious. No offense, Madonna. Um, so when she asked me to yodel, I think she originally, so she did this little country album and she originally was going to do the yodeling herself. Um, but it's difficult. Yodeling is definitely kind of a year's worth of practice. Um, so I was really honored she asked me to do the yodel. It was a hard yodel to do, actually. It was a whole new style for me.
0: It was an amazing yodel, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, the audience, whoever they should check it out. It's a great track.
1: Yeah, it's really fun. I should post that one. That reminds Isn't me there? to do that. Um. Let's see. Should I keep answering questions? How are we doing on time?
0: Uh, well, I think, um, should we, uh, have two more questions? Sure. Yeah. That's
1: great. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And thanks. I thought the book is called Never Broken. If anybody wants to get it, I wrote it. There's no ghostwriters. And I formed a website called jewelneverbroken.com about six years ago a neuroscientist studied the exercises I developed for myself while I was homeless and he actually showed why they do neurologically rewire your brain and those are the exercises I've been using with kids um, and our foundation and they're up for free on a free website called jewelneverbroken.com so if anybody wants that um happy new year any resolutions hopes or wishes for the new year yeah There is. Um, I guess if I could sum up one huge migration that I hope all of society would tackle (laughs) that I'm constantly tackling is somewhere along the line, we became very, very mental. We started thinking our brains could figure everything out and we stopped investing in any other aspect of our humanity like emotions, you know, in school, we're not taught what to do with feelings, which is bizarre, because our feelings help us understand the world. And when we feel safe, we think anxiety is an enemy. That's a problem. That's a, that's against nature. It's anti nature. That's like saying the wind is a problem. Our anxiety is there to tell us when we're not in agreement with our life. So the fact that we're this anxious means we're not in agreement with a lot of our life. You know, for me, when I was homeless, I wasn't in agreement with my life. It didn't, it didn't agree with me. Anxiety is like food poisoning, you know, you eat something that makes you sick, you throw up and you your body going, don't ever eat that again. Well, a lot of our thoughts are toxic, a lot of our beliefs are poisonous. A lot of our life is so busy and so distracted, it makes us anxious. And yet, we keep thinking that our anxiety is the problem, not our surround, you know, not what we're surrounding ourselves in. So moving from the head into your heart is hippy dippy as that sounds, but realizing I think our heart, if we're in our heart, we're going to make a better decision. If we're in our heart, we're going to advocate for ourselves and for our neighbors better. And so I just hope the world takes heart. I hope the world has the courage to have feelings and to listen to those feelings and not just suppress and numb and disassociate. Because even though it's difficult to be aware right now, it's better than the alternative. You can't take a drug and get rid of what we got going on. So I think that's my wish is that I can do a better job at that and that we all feel encouraged to help ourselves and each other live in our heart. That's brilliant. All right, one more. Oh, when will the new record come out? You know, I think I'll probably start trying to release a song or two this year is my guess. I'm already starting to work on another record. I I got this record done quite a while ago, a year ago, at least I think. Um, So I'm ready for it to come out. I'm super excited. And I'm also making another folk record. Oh, and that would be my other my number two record is a record called picking up the pieces. So lullaby and picking up the pieces. That's a picking up the pieces as a folk record I made in 2015 uh, just produced it myself
0: thank you Joel. thank you that was just what we needed brilliant and awesome we love you and um yeah and we hope that you will be coming you know when all this is over you'll be coming and playing and we'll we'll
1: come and see you I would love it yeah it's been a really long time thank you so much thank you well, so. thanks thanks everybody thanks for the opportunity enjoyed it